0: Stop all the clocks. Prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone. Silence the pianos and, with muffled drum, bring out the coffin and let the mourners come. Blackburn Rovers drew a league match. Love is dead. Fun is prohibited. And these statistical quirks that help us keep the tears away never last. And a part of my soul has been extinguished. But, on today's episode, we recap the whole EFL weekend in the championship. Last of the summer wine, more like first of the season twine. 9.45 on a Friday night is now known as twine time, as Scott spins a cracking yarn, extending Burnley's string of league wins to eight. 8 and on Saturday, we saw another rendition of Wagner's Ride of the Valiant Canaries. And we finished with Sundayland as Carrick's borough melt on Mowbray's hot liquid Black Cats. In League One, it was Fog on the Thames, Oxford beating Ipswich late, apparently, and there's a Moose on the Loose on the south coast and he's got a taste for winning football matches league two was 75% frozen but we'll let it go because we saw some kung fu fighting and three massive results at top and bottom good heavens george alec what a show in store this is the ntt20 podcast sponsored by Betfair.
1: what an intro i feel like you and I have been playing up front together for the last six seasons. We've both been getting like 15, 20 goals. The fans love us the same amount. And then you've suddenly come back from pre-season and you're a different animal. And I don't know what to do. How am I going to keep up with this? There is no way that I can replicate the kind of form you're showing in those intros. I need to find a way to up my game. Um, the range of emotions I felt during that is quite extraordinary. I don't know what to do.
0: I have every faith that you will find more strings to your bow as we continue. We are still early in
1: our journey. You're still going. Listen to this. You're still rhyming with every sentence. It's absolutely mad. Uh, How are you? All good? I am. I am good. Yes. It was interesting that you brought up the end of the statistical anomaly that was Blackburn's lack of... Gutted. Drawing, where I was going to um, bring up. Maybe because it was a draw. We should talk about this early on. Where given that you and I both have a real penchant for the uh, extraordinary... For French
0: words in the English language.
1: Bien sûr. (laughs) Yeah, maybe because because of that. Do you feel like we maybe haven't spent enough time talking about Bristol City's lack of penalties? Go ahead. What's the problem? I mean, there's a very good Twitter thread that I could recommend to you from friend of the pod, James at JBCFC. I think double underscore possibly at the end of that, or one. Just just do the JBCFC and you'll find him. Um, to celebrate 442 days since Bristol City were last awarded a penalty, how about a game of pen or no pen? And he goes to lists. I think it's 13 or 12. Yeah, 12 penalty decisions, of which I'd probably give a penalty for. I would say nine, but they are 12 of. 30 or 40 instances where um, marginal penalty decisions have got, have not gone the way of Bristol City over this time. And it is kind of mad when you think about it, um, when you see so many soft penalties given, how they've been on the receiving end of this for such a long time. I think the, the important thing to say now is that um, I don't think there is some kind of... Uh, you know, anything underhand going on. I don't think the referees have gathered together and they said, lads, you know, that Nigel Pearson was so rude to those journalists ten years ago, let's be really mean to him and not give his side on any penalties. I think it is just a, a really weird quirk. Um I remember when I was tipping up Naki Wells to be top goal scorer in the um in the championship back in kind of September, October, speaking to a Bristol City supporting friend of mine and i said something like i even think he might take pens and he replied being like well that's irrelevant because we're never going to get a penalty and i was like yeah of course you will it's now mid-january and we're seeing it again and in the game against against blackburn i think there was probably a penalty on nacky wells didn't you like it wasn't a stone wall penalty but it was another one which i would put it down in the more likely given than not given and yet again no dice it is Really bizarre. And and I I do think it'll probably end with Bristol City getting two penalties in the game or something mad. London buses.
0: Well, I'm glad we have spoken about it. I have nothing to add, Your Honour, other than to say, with apology to Bristol City fans, I'm quite pleased that we've raised this because, as discussed, I need a statistical quirk to fuel me to fund me, to keep me going. And with Blackburn Rovers having drawn a league match for the first time this season, at the 28th time of asking, I've now got another one that I can cling on to, just using statistical quirks as my personality, which is something that I like to do.
1: It's also got to the stage, I've just just read now, that um, 12 days ago, Bristol City reached out to PGMOL to basically draw it to our attention as to why this is happening, which in itself must be quite a weird position to be in now, where referees are effectively going into games fully aware of this of this quirk. I don't know if that would make them more or less likely. You'd hope it wouldn't have any impact because they should be able to to look at things objectively. But um, yeah, I, you've got to feel pretty sorry for Bristol City that this is the case. Um, but then I think there's also a weird quirk where they haven't given many away either. The whole thing is bizarre. I found, there was a website I found last week which had like a ticking timer of both penalties they'd, they'd, they'd awarded and given away, but I can't find it right now. I think it was called something like When did Bristol City last get a penalty.com?
0: In fairness, I spent three years at university in Bristol and I did not always show good judgment in that time in that city. So I will not be judging the referees for making poor decisions. Albeit, yes, that is very weird. And our focus is now on Bristol City Penalty Watch. To start the championship, I don't like starting just automatically with the top two, but I do want to start this week with Burnley and Sheffield United because I'm still not tired of their excellence. And George El Arbitro, Hugh Davis, legend of the NTT 20 squad, he wanted to change lanes from betting show referee and historian to Monday pod producer. And he wrote on the squad this morning, if today's pod were to have a theme, could it be title credentials? Burnley went behind to one of the would-be challenges for the automatics and won through a quality strike from one of their many talented attackers who hadn't even been able to play a part in their success up to now. while Sheffield United rode off-field turbulence to beat a resurgent Hull. That's our top two in the champ. Stevenage, second, beat Leighton Orient, first, to move nine points clear of third and I think 13 or 14 clear of fourth. That's our top two, slash three. Plymouth and Wednesday both won, while Ipswich lost, putting them ten points brackets one extra game played and seven points clear of third. Is that our top two? Question mark. More good stuff from the NTT 20 squad. Peter Lohman chipping in with this fact. Since 92 31 seasons and my entire life, the second tier has never had as big a gap between second and third after 28 matches as it currently
1: has. Burnley and Sheffield United marching on. The run of form they've both been on is incredible um, I had to go back and double check I think in October I was talking about how Luton were, were genuine promotion contenders and I went back and I th- in my head I remembered tweeting Luton Town a genuine automatic promotion contender and so I was like that can't be right because they're so far off and I went back and checked and I had and that was because back then the gap between the top two and the rest was so small. But what has happened is Burnley have won 11 of their last four, 13 games. One of those two games they didn't win was against Sheffield United. Sheffield United themselves have won 10 of their last 12. So two, you've got two teams there putting in performances that over the course of the season would put them on about 130 points. I mean, it, it is absolutely ridiculous how relentless these two sides have been. And in terms of what Hugh is saying, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, in terms of the top two, you have to think it's done. We've caveated quite a lot of praise in recent weeks, to, well, especially with regards to, to Middlesbrough. Um, maybe spoken about Norwich in, in these terms as well after the Preston win being like, if one of those two teams were to slip up, this is the team that could go up and challenge them. It, it's fast becoming clear that for these two teams to slip up, they're probably going to have to start showing relegation form and... There seems to be absolutely no reason why that would be the case. I think what we've got here, and I'm all for it, to be honest, um, is a proper title race now where I'm not going to sit here and, and do an Ali Maxwell and say they are promoted. If I were
0: you, I would sit there and try and do as many Ali Maxwells as you can, pal.
1: <laughs> I'll start rhyming. Um, they, uh, yeah, they. the longer this goes on, and even if they start averaging, you know, just under two points a game over the next few weeks, it's it's going to get to the stage where in March um, we're going to know these two teams are are basically up, and it's a, a a pure shootout for the top. We saw an incredible game when they met a few weeks ago, with that, that second half Blades performance probably being up there with the best half performances we've seen in the season. Um, and I'm all for just having a proper tussle at the top to see who can who can win the league um, because they're two quality sides. And you mentioned you know talking about Scott Twine. You and I sat and watched the first twenty minutes he had as a Burnley player on opening day against Huddersfield. You know, he missed that free kick. Very similar position. Very late in the game. He played twenty minutes in that game. He only played nine minutes from in the league from the end of that of that Huddersfield game till he came off the bench against West Brom here. And for somebody who scored twenty was it twenty goals and thirteen assists last season in League One, who who won the Player of the Season in League One as well to go through such a difficult time. you know. Obviously, he's at a great place to play football. He'd have been delighted to see how well his team has done. But the frustration of not being able to regain full fitness and not play his part, for him, not just to score a goal, but to come off the bench and score a goal at home, under the lights, live on Sky, against the, one of the form teams in the league in such a dramatic way, with Sheffield United having already played and won, I mean, that, it couldn't really have been scripted much better. I'm, I'm over the moon for him. Uh, and it was, you know, Baggies, Baggies fans and, and Blades fans won't agree, but it was up there with, with one of the moments of the season so far in the EFL.
0: It wasn't easy, you know, for, for half an hour of this game, it looked like West Brom were playing the perfect away game with the perfect Corboran game plan. You know, they scored a goal from a set piece, they had the lead, and, and for half an hour, probably, Burnley were scratching their heads a bit. The end of the first half kind of set the tone, I think, for the second. There was a bit of Burnley pressure. It was it was resolute defending from West Brom into the second half as well until it wasn't. And from a baggy perspective, I was really disappointed with the way that Teller was able to score his first goal. Like in that match situation... You are mostly defending deep. You are mostly bunkered in. You are repelling shots and crosses. And they were doing that well and they had bodies always between the man on the ball or the bloke shooting and the goal. And that can be very difficult even for a team like Burnley to get through, albeit they've been good at that this season. So to allow Teller to be one-on-one from a pretty... I mean, it was a great ball from Zaruri, but ultimately a simple move, like a simple direct through ball... And for Teller to finish one-on-one, I thought was really, really disappointing. And I would have, you know, if they had been able to see that out with that resolute defending, it would have been quite something. I'd, I'd actually asked on NTT 20 squad that morning to Jake, who's a West Brom fan, whether Shemi Ajayi might come in for Eric Peters, who's been playing centre-back for the last few weeks, because Ajayi's recovery speed is so, so good and so much more suited to a, a kind of front-footed defensive approach with a mid or a high line. He didn't come in for Eric Peters and watching Peters pulling a bus chasing after Teller, I wondered again whether Ajayi might come in for Peters soon. I know Peters provides the left foot balance, but I, I do think Ajayi is is going to do more to, to keep goals out of the goal albeit that is something that they've done pretty well recently um, but it was all about Twine it means that he's now scored in the League of Ireland for Waterford uh, the National League South for Chippenham uh, League 2 with Swindon and Newport League 1 with Swindon and MK Dons and now in the Championship with Burnley he has scored 34 league goals 19 of them from outside the box 14 of them free kicks I believe um, he's so good on both short range free kicks that awkward 20-yard distance where you have to get it up and down and in. And he's so good at the long-range ones, basically anywhere within 37 yards, let's say. We've seen him hit the bar quite a few times. We've seen him score one or two because of the movement that he puts on the ball. I it's a really hard one to research and I tried to do it this morning I tried to find out if anyone had scored more free kicks than Scott Twine since the start of the, the 2021 season if anyone had scored more goals from outside the box than Scott Twine in the 21, uh, 2021 season and I don't think that anyone gets particularly close even Messi who I'm pretty sure is second for those two categories so I just I love it so much it was it was perfect Sheffield um, United beat Hull with uh, another one of our favourites Daniel Jebberson scoring a goal. He, a bit like Twine in a weird way, albeit without such a a nasty and frustrating injury. You know, he started on opening day for Sheffield United. We were quite excited about that. Uh, but this was his second start of the season and, and and taking his goal well.
1: Yeah, we sat on the sofa at Sky and, and spoke about him for 21 under 21 last season when he had just been recalled from a loan spell at Burton. I think we anticipated he was going to get an opportunity at Blades and that's why he'd been recalled. And he did play a bit. You know, he played his part in the second half of the season. Uh, he, he came on in the uh, second leg of the, of the playoff uh, semifinals, which they lost as well. But he didn't score a goal. And he hadn't scored a goal in the championship in not many minutes, but, but a fair few minutes th- this season too. Um, that was his first goal. He had scored in the league since leaving Burton last January. Uh, it was really well taken as well, um, scoring after four or five minutes. I, I thought this was one of... Blades' best performances of, of recent weeks. Harler a decent side and, and they played their part in the game as well. You know, it wasn't one my traffic at all but on the balance of play despite being ahead early um, Sheffield United still had the better of the game and, and massive credit to them for that. It was interesting because I, you know, I guess the big news out of Sheffield United in the last week <clears throat> is the, the transfer embargo they are now under with default payments to, to another club. We're not sure which club it is or which transfer it is. Um, and the... Um, you know, that the official line from the club is that they're working hard with the stakeholders involved and that they hope that there will be a resolution to this before the window is closed. So Sheffield United certainly aren't, um, you know, aren't suggesting that this is going to be a long-term issue. And and I I made the point on Five Live on Saturday saying, you know, it was interesting that Jebberson, someone who, if they were to go out and bring in a striker, would probably limit limit Jebberson's minutes. Um, You know, he was the one who scored the goal, but... Jepson's there on, on merit at the moment. You know, Billy Sharp and Oli McBurney were both on the bench and, and came on. It's not a case of he's only getting his chance because of an injury crisis as well. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. I mean, in terms of the title race, you have Burnley going out and signing, buying a, a Swedish international centre back um, last week. So for Sheffield United, currently under an embargo, and looking at your, you know, your rivals who are already a fair bit ahead of you, being able to kind of bring in, go and bring in that kind of quality in terms of the title race, you have to think that's going to benefit, um, benefit Burnley, especially when you think that Scott Twine was, you know, one of the biggest bits of business they did in the summer, who is very much going to be the cliche, basically a new signing.
0: We talk about what you can expect in the short term from a January signing. For Gillingham, we were quite happy to go like, yeah, these guys are likely going to make a massive impact because you've barely picked up any points for the first six months. For Burnley... Like, how realistic is it that a new signing is going to make them even better? It's almost impossible for them to get that much better. Um, I suppose for Burnley, it it maybe feels necessary because centre-backs, the area of the pitch where they've both got the least amount of depth uh, and have actually been quite lucky with injuries until this exact point with Harwood-Bellis now out. But like, if if everyone's fit, Bayer and Harwood-Bellis have been so good anyway that the, the Swedish kid's probably wouldn't come in to start anyway.
1: It's more depth, isn't it? I think, you know, I would say. Like, it's it's probably just quite galling when you can't do anything to, to see the quality. <laughs> yeah. And 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 also, you know, you said they can't get much better. It, it, the quality of a man that they haven't been able to play all season was the difference between them getting a draw and getting three points on Friday night. I mean, yeah. it, bringing individual quality into the side can have... Either an intangible impact, or in the case of Scott Twine, there a mm. very clear and obvious benefit.
0: I could, I could absolutely tange that on Friday night. Yeah. In fact, I I would have made that fungible if I could. Non-fungible. <laughs> I would have made that free kick non-fungible. And you'd I have could. made
1: it. You'd have made it a, a, an NFT. I'm sure you probably could. Speak to Twiner.
0: The the other thing with Sheffield United and this embargo, which is a bit sort of fuels uncertainty, is. There's talks of a potential takeover. Prince Abdullah, the owner, uh, allegedly, reportedly in talks with an unnamed buyer. uh, Paul Heckingbott had said that was already impacting their January transfer plans. I think, to my eyes, across the 72 teams, any of them to get a transfer embargo right now, Sheffield United is the most sort of irrelevant just purely in January transfer window terms. I think they have a brilliant deep squad with quality in all areas when everyone's fit, which they mostly are at the moment. At a push, looking at it on paper, would you would you want them to maybe sign a centre back for a bit more depth? Maybe, but you know, they've even from Saturday's squad, you've got Kieran Clark not playing. Um Norrington Davis is out injured at the moment, but is around and has played that left centre back role. So it's not going to have an impact on them winning promotion or not, this embargo, what's fair to say. My hope is that they, because there's a takeover imminent. This has just kind of slipped through the net or that the current owner is trying to kick the can down the road so that the new owner has to deal with it, which I'm sure they would if they, if they were serious about taking over the club. But if that's not the case and if a takeover isn't imminent and if there is a cash flow problem, the main concern for me is whether it might necessitate the sale of one of their star men, whether a player sale in January might be necessary purely from a financial perspective. That would be... Most likely, Illeman and Jai, who's been linked with Everton, or Sander Berger, the obvious candidates. They're both excellent players. From the looks of Saturday, the extended highlights on their YouTube channel, both playing unbelievably well at the moment. That would be my only concern. Of course, that's just conjecture. That's just concern at this point. But I hope that isn't going to be the case. Let's talk about some other fun wins in the championship. Wagner's revolution continues, doesn't it? 4-2 win at Cov. Just as fun as last week. Same a number of goals as well
1: did you from your intro when you said the rise of the canaries did you steal that from my b.b B column or did you think you made it up yourself oh i didn't read your column <laughs> ah it was a it was a two winner thank you norwich to win in btts um it was one of my subheadings you know how proud of my subheadings i am um yeah i mean this was more of the same really i think norwich are going to be quite fun to watch under david wagner just as hardest people david wagner were quite fun to watch too I wasn't particularly uh, excited about this appointment. I have done a 180-degree about turn, um, not the 360-degree turn I used to do on the pod before Hugh Davis pointed out that that was uh, not not a thing. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's high octane. It is aggressive. I mean, part of me, in the same way for the Preston game, thinks Grant Hanley has kind of, prodder one in from a from a from a corner or it's a known goal for the first goal and then onel oh, no, hernandez has managed to squirm one under the keeper like again similar to the week before where you've got kieran Dow smashing one into the top corner from distance is this again a bit of variance going against um Nathan, dean dean smith in, in the favor of, of, of david wagner i don't think it is purely because yes the goals themselves might be avoidable to an extent but the balance of play and the way that Norwich are able to consistently create chance after chance compared to the stale stuff we were seeing under, under Smith is chalk and cheese. So I'm going to give them credit for that. And credit to Coventry as well, because at 3-0 down at home after 20 minutes, with fans, I mean, the headline was they were going home, I reckon they were just going for a pint, um, leaving the stands. I mean, things were looking pretty poor, but they managed to, to get themselves back into the game at 3-2 at half-time, had opportunities to make the game 3-0. But um, Norwich, was still the better side at three-two, and it was and it was fair and right that they got the goal to make it four-two. Um to Casey Palmer for a really good finish, nicking the ball off Gakpores' foot um, for, for the for the Coventry second goal. Um, just a really entertaining game between two sides who, um, you know, are two of the the best for the neutral, I would say. But Norwich, in my mind, can join Borough and West Brom now as being um, well certainly if we've seen in the last two games. So I think if if they continue that, then then. Those three, the three that I'd be very surprised if they're not in the playoffs. So I'm already going back on what I said in the um, in our mid-table predictions, mm. and one of the teams I said are gonna to have to come out because I'm, I'm seeing enough.
0: Mm. Guns blazing, nice. I, I was I was gonna be here asking, will can we expect this to last forever, or could this just be an initial burst? Maybe things will settle down a little bit. Of
1: C- course it could. Of course it could. Mm.
0: Sounds like you're expecting them to win the league, mate. Um, Gabriel no. Sara probably sticks out for me here absolutely brilliant performance in midfield so far from what I'd seen of him he looked like a player playing in a very different league to where he'd been playing before trying to adapt and get up to speed and here he looked like the player that they would have dreamt about when they signed him pure quality full of confidence on the ball just another excellent player in this team and all of a sudden a squad and a team that looked like it was full of bad players now looks like it's full of good players Funny how quickly that can turn yes. around, eh? pooky magisterial with his movement as always. Sargent's found himself a nice role that seems to suit him. Aaron's is looking good down the right side. It's uh, it's happy days for the moment. Let's see how it continues. I am enjoying it. Why don't you tell me about Sunderland two Middlesbrough Nil, George, this one from Sunday lunchtime?
1: Yeah, the, the the most difficult day I think for Michael Carrick so far in his um in his tenure as, as borough manager. You know, there's Certainly not the, the kind of rivalry uh, up in the in the North East as Sunderland have with their, with their neighbours Newcastle. But still, they're always a, a pretty lively game between these two. And um, I thought Sunderland were, were pretty good value for their win, not just when it was 11 v 10. Sunderland, just when they're at it, when they're at their best and they've got Jack Clark, Amad Diallo and Patrick Roberts all just buzzing around in that final third. It's very, very hard to defend against. And that was the case here. Uh, Ahmad was, was probably the biggest attacking threat in the first half, uh, unsurprisingly, just so lively. And I love the way that he's able to, I think his biggest skill in my mind is how quick he is in the final third at being able to to kind of create a goal-scoring opportunity. Um, you know, he missed a really good chance, which he put wide of, of Stefan's, um, you know, wide of the, the bottom right-hand corner as Jamad was looking at it with his left foot. But it wasn't a, a bad finish. It was one of those where it's millimetres from Nesting into the bottom corner. Um and yeah, in that first half, I thought they were the dominant side, looked the most likely to, to get the goal. Um, Ross Stewart thought he had got a goal with a uh, an offside, but definitely was offside, um, one just before half time. And then I guess the game did turn. You know, you have to, even though Sundland with a better side in the first half, there was the red card and penalty decision early in the seconds. You know, you said at the top, we don't talk about refereeing decisions. so well, I'm going to break that again now. Um, where, you know, just to, to set the scene for those who haven't seen it, Ross Stewart um, is in front of Dale Fry with the ball over the top. Fry is quite clearly trying to kind of use his arm to, to, to get Stewart back. Stewart stays on his feet until he gets to the box and then he goes down and it's a penalty and a red card. The first thing to say in this is that I, I think quite a lot of people don't seem to understand the rules here where people always shout about first contact. First contact is totally and utterly irrelevant. Because if you think about it, if, you, if you're using first contact as the rule as to where a foul started, then that would give you license to do whatever you wanted once first contact was made. And that isn't the case. If a player stays on, stays on their feet after the first, second, third contact and then is fouled in the box and goes down, that is a penalty. It, it doesn't matter what's happened before that. But that doesn't necessarily ring true here because, from what I can see, it is a foul probably about three fouls. Yes, Stuart's arm is across Fry as well, but that's only after Fry's has initiated the contact and, and has started trying to pull him back. Um, but the foul doesn't continue into the box. I think if anything, Fry, just before Stuart goes over, is resigned to defeat and he's like, right, I've tried to foul him three times outside the box. He's now getting inside the box. I'm gonna leave him and see what happens. And that's when Stuart goes down. I think he's entitled to go down. I think he's been pulled back a few times. I think it's a red card because there's no intention from Fry to play the ball. But I definitely don't think it's a penalty. I don't think there is a second in that tussle where Stewart is inside the penalty box and is being fouled. It's clever centre-forward play from him doesn't matter too much. Sunderland's attacking player
0: was very excited. That's what I'll take most away from this one. Um, and just like the array of different exciting names that are just popping out every few months. Like when Corey Evans came off injured after 10 minutes, I was a bit concerned because... I felt like he's the one in the squad, the first teamer, that doesn't have an obvious replacement in terms of what he can do and what he does well, like mopping up and being tidy and being experienced and being a leader and allowing Dan Neil to flourish. But actually, when mishu came on for him, and I was a little bit worried they were going to lose a bit of solidity, I now just think Dan Neil has improved so much on the defensive side of the game that he can be Corey Evans if he needs to be Corey Evans, and also still be Dan Neal. And because of the... I haven't seen that much of Michoud and Bar, the other French midfielder, but I've 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 seen and I've heard quite a lot about both of them being pretty tidy, quite exciting, pretty silky, potentially like Bar quite good at carrying the ball through midfield, Michoud just really tidy and technical. And I wonder, having seen this, it's only, what, 80 minutes worth, I wonder if Neal and Michoud or Neil and Barr might potentially be more impactful than a, an Evans Neil pairing um, because of what Neil can now do defensively. I, I'm excited to find out, even though I, I do think Evans is great. And then you've got the fullbacks looking good. At, um, AJ Elise on the left, only 22. They signed him on a perm from West Ham. And six months later, he's looking pretty comfy and pretty dominant. Tidy on the ball. Uh, Try Hume on the right, age 20.
1: You've learned a lot about Try Hume this week, haven't you? Yeah,
0: I have learned a lot about Try Hume this week. <laughs> <laughs> Sutherland definitely don't need to sign a right back. <laughs> even though I do think Jordan Williams is excellent because Tri Hume is is like the sort of Cafu Alexander Arnold Cancelo hybrid.
1: I'm trying to think what song you're gonna you're gonna be able to wedge Tri Hume into. It feels was... It's
0: Tri Ho again. Yeah, yeah. Not for the first time. Uh,
1: even though even though Hume and Ho are, yeah. Tri Hume.
0: It's fine. Okay. I think All if right. you got forty thousand at Stadium and Light screaming that in unison, you'd you'd feel it. <laughs> That's for sure. Anyway, Um, Yeah, their their recruitment in the last 12 months has been brilliant. So I think it's about time that we mentioned Christian Speakman's arrival at the club having coincided with some decisions that have made this football team a hell of a lot better in in about a year. Uh, First, getting Alex Neal in and him leading them to promotion. Then coping with Alex Neal's departure by getting Tony Mowbray in, who looks like he's having a pretty good time and and everyone's loving. Uh, And then the recruitment, reducing the average age of the squad, but bringing in players who are absolutely able to impact things and play an exciting technical round of football at championship level. They've got young, hungry players with quality. And also, and this isn't as exciting for fans, but it's very important for the good times to keep rolling. They've got a group of players with really high resale value or who should, if all goes well, have really high resale value. Patterson in goal, Ballard at the back, Sirkin, Elise, Hume, Neil, Clark, just to name a few, like 23 and and under, who if all goes well with their development and they keep performing at championship level, will be absolutely potential like big, big money signings for Premier League clubs, let's say. so, And, and they've supplemented it, not with loads and loads of, of loanies, but just two, both with quality. Diallo from Man Miss shoot from PSG. It's uh yeah, it's exciting. I'm enjoying watching it. Consistency is, is the obvious objective, as it is for any of the seeded-batch teams with an eye on the playoffs. One or two of those teams just has to put this together more consistently and they'll punch their way into the playoffs in May. Um, speaking of consistency, George Millwall, they're showing it at the moment, went to Cardiff and won 1-0. Four clean sheets in their last five. In fact, in their last 15 games, George, 28 points, so just under two points per game in their last 15 and they've only conceded 10 in 15 games. Gary Rowett certainly has a good grip on a consistent Lions team.
1: Yeah, he does. It was a, a kind of bizarre goal um, where... It was, yeah, just just one moment of, of really poor defensive work from Cedric Kipre where he looked like he, you know, was going to shepherd a ball out or at least he was going to do something with it. And um, Tom Bradshaw managed to grow a third leg from somewhere and managed to, to kind of hook round Kipre into the back of the net. It was a totally avoidable goal. Uh, there wasn't much, I don't think, between the two teams. I guess my one takeaway from this was actually that it was one of Cardiff's better performances um, where they, under Dean Whitehead, the caretaker manager, their third person to take charge of a, um, of a of a match so far this season. I'm pretty sure the Cardiff owners will be reticent to invest too much faith in whitehead off the back of well i mean they lost the game but off the back of a fairly decent performance but they had they had 22 shots in the game which i haven't done the research but i would i would have thought was amongst their highest so far this season they, they won the xg battle pretty comfortably um it wasn't like they created loads of really good chances kind Robinson was was quite clearly there um had the best although kiano had eight shots in the game which is quite something um but yeah but bill will you know kept them pretty much at arm's length they weren't, they weren't too troubled uh, in this one and uh, yeah it was that moment from Bradshaw uh, midway through the first half which which swung it and you know Neil Warnock came out last week and said that he will not be coming out of retirement to take over at Cardiff so who's now the bookie's favourite Sam Allardyce oh I was going to guess at least, Craig Bellamy <laughs> Bellamy would be mad to leave Bernie, wouldn't he um, we uh, well I sat here in this very seat, in this very room, in our staff office last week and spoke about how um, Cardiff lacked an identity. And I take it back because if they've actually genuinely, I mean, there's no suggestion they have, but if they have gone after Warnock, Warnock's not them back and then they've gone after Big Sam. At least they seem to know what they want this time.
0: Yes. Well, Millwall march on. Cardiff, as you say, haven't hired anyone yet, but Blackpool have, and Blackpool have hired former Cardiff City manager Mick McCarthy to replace Michael Appleton having parted ways with Michael Appleton uh, last week after we recorded. So I think that the Michael Appleton era was a bit of a mess uh, at Blackpool all in um, for a few different reasons. And whether you agree or not with the reasons why Blackpool fans were uninspired by the appointment, the reasons that they weren't inspired by the appointment, were quite predictable you could have seen them coming if you were the board and i feel like the board should have foreseen the problems that might be caused it's not like appleton is an unknown quantity when it comes to his kind of reserved character and his unemotional style um it's obviously known that appleton and blackpool had a certain past and and you have to think that some some better due diligence could have been done just on this one part of hiring a manager. There's loads that you think about when you hire a manager, but one part has to be potential relationship with the fan base. It just has to be. And they didn't do that properly in my opinion. So I, I mean, I always felt it would be a tough job from a stylistic and a a kind of a situational point of view, right? Like we talk about joining a club when they're at a low ebb, because the manager before has done a poor job and, and, and things can only get better. That clearly wasn't the case here. I actually went back and found my notes from from my pre-season research spreadsheet, where I, For every club in the 72, I'll do pros, I'll do cons, I'll just jot down anything that I'm feeling in, in July. And for Blackpool, I wrote, always concerned when a transformative manager leaves, which is what Critchley had been, especially one with a pretty different style of play to the incoming. I just think they were so much greater than the sum of their parts to such a huge extent and that is hard to achieve and continue. They were so, so competitive and I'm afraid I think that was down to the manager, not the strength of the squad. They look light at the back and I don't think Appleton's teams are as good out of possession as some managers like Critchley, though I might be proven wrong. I just cannot see them matching last season. So not matching last season was going to mean not winning very many football matches and likely being involved in a relegation battle. And when you don't have much credit in the bank from the very beginning, that mixture, that equation, that cauldron, that potion is is not a very good one. So I don't think anything that's happened, basically, in the last five months since his appointment has been a surprise. But it's been been difficult to, to follow. It's been difficult to watch.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess everything you've said there has been proven right. I was certainly more optimistic. I would uh, point to, um, yeah, if you, if you look at last season and you know the two most important people for blackpool's success last season um were neil critchley and josh bowler and critchley moved on um bowler was there for the first five or six games of 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 the season then moved on keshi anderson was probably the second most attacking player maybe third um behind well yeah i mean the the strikers there as well but Two basically key attacking players there um, that Critchie had weren't available to Appleton. As you say, I think culturally it was it was a terrible fit from the word go. Appleton previously appointed by um, the you know the man who may should not be named around Blackpool, so being in any way associated to the Oyston era um, is not a good start. And then obviously with with his, with his Preston
0: named him within two seconds, Voldemort.
1: Yeah, I'm not. A, I'm not a Blackpool fan. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just enjoyed the phrasing. He who must not be named. The Oyston era.
1: Didn't first name him though. <laughs> um, yeah. It, it, and you know the Preston links as well. As I mentioned, I you know Appleton isn't necessarily somebody who is going to pander um, to the fans. He's not going to hold his tongue or, or anything like that. And it, yeah, it, it didn't work. I think in hindsight, you know, I remember speaking to to, to my Appleton when we interviewed him. Before he took the Lincoln job and he said he was gonna pick his jobs based on the owners rather than the club. I think with Clive Nates and Lincoln he did that with some success. I think with Simon Sadler and Blackpool he probably did that as well. But maybe without looking at the, you know, the wider picture here. And even though I'm fairly sure on a pure footballing level, things would have improved. Maybe because the fans had turned the way they had, it was best for all parties for it to, for it to end the way that it did. I cannot say that I love the appointment of Mick McCarthy. Now, coming out coming out of this two ways. As, I think as a Blackpool fan, I can absolutely see why you would. You've got somebody who, you know, frankly, is is an absolute legend of the of the game in terms of his his management. And he isn't somebody who, um, you know, his management style, whilst it made great, there's no denying how popular it's been. And I think you t- if you take Ipswich Town as an example, you know, at Ipswich he was an incredibly successful manager who took them to the brink of returning to the Premier League. But by the time he would left the club, his reputation within a certain group of their fans was so low because of the style of football that was being played, because they were not enjoying going to games anymore. And then as soon as he left, things just really unravelled very, very quickly. And those are my two issues here, where I think I think Mick McCarthy will definitely keep Blackpool up. I'd be really surprised if he doesn't. I think the squad is, you know, you've got three first team players in Bowler, Tribal, and Morgan Rogers. I mean, Penny for Morgan Rogers' is thoughts, having signed to, to come and play under Mike Clapperton again. Um, you've got three players there who are going to come straight to the first team and improve them, um, which is so the squad has improved. They've also got the the right back in from Ireland as well. He seemed, seemingly made a very very good start um, in uh, Andy Lyons. Um, so you've got a, a better squad. You've got in Mick a manager who I'm sure will. Will, will bring out a, an improvement you know I've also spoken a lot about the the difficulty of taking a, a bottom six championship job I think the only way you can really make that work I guess is if you get a manager in like like Mick who has proven to get the absolute most out of maybe technically limited footballers you need somebody who is going to be able to get results going onto the onto the football pitch knowing that your team isn't as good as the as your opposite team and that is far more in Mick McCarthy's remit and, and his history than it is in Michael Appleton's. And in that case, it works. My issue is more the long-term strategy, where I mean, this is very, very similar situation to what we saw at Middlesbrough and Neil Warnock, where if Mick does what is expected of him and he is able to raise the the um, you know the, the performances up to that level and keep them up, I anticipate his contract will be extended longer but you've just given a four-year deal to Michael Appleton. Prior to that, you've given two long-term contracts to Neil Critchley. It does feel like a massive shift in strategy here about about what Blackpool are trying to do and what they're trying to be. Chris Badland, former head of recruitment at Coventry, now head of recruitment at Blackpool, has seemingly played quite a big part in this um, decision. And if that is the case, maybe he is willing to get in Mick, recruit for that style of football and embrace it. And, and if that's the case, then, then totally fair enough. But I... Yeah, it feels to me like a a decent short-term appointment, but maybe it should be just that, and I'm not convinced that it it necessarily will be.
0: The the last job he had was at Cardiff. It ended horrifically, but the only relevant part of that for this current situation is the first five months, unless McCarthy is appointed full time in the summer, which has not been, which is not the plan at the moment, and unless he leads them out in the first match of next season, that terrible period from the start of last season till October when he was sacked is just not as relevant as the job he did from January when he arrived to May 2021. So I want to just remind ourselves of that. McCarthy came in in mid-January, and they had lost I think five in a row under Neil Harris. They started under McCarthy 11 games unbeaten with seven wins. Uh, they ended the season with the best record in the league from the point that McCarthy joined at one point seven, seven points per game. It was objectively brilliant results from uh, from a sort of mid-season managerial appointment. So what did he do? Well, he shook things up and he did a load of stuff that he was expected to do then and worked very well. And therefore, I'm sure he will expect to do here and we'll hope that it works very well. Switched to three at the back, went for very, very strong physical types at the back in particular. Within weeks, Cardiff led the league for dual win percentage and aerial win percentage. And it worked as a style at the back. Their physical dominance was excellent. Flint and Morrison and Curtis Nelson. uh, But they weren't just that. They were solid, but they scored a lot of goals and they got goals from different areas. So those three, Flint and Morrison and Nelson, obviously scored quite a lot of set piece goals between them. They trotted up 15 times a game for balls into the box, and they're so big that they got opportunities from it. And G and Bennett were very solid sort of defensive wingbacks. Pack and Volks were mainly the midfield too, and they had a bit of quality on the ball and quite a lot of energy. And then it was two of either Rules Wilson, that's Harry Wilson, Murphy and Shea Yojo. But most importantly, big key for more was absolutely incredible under Mick McCarthy for five or six months. So it was a very direct approach, as you'd expect. Paging Gary Medine. Paging Gary Medine. quite. They got goals from Kiefer Moore, I think 12-22. Uh, albeit a few penalties there, but they also scored 13 from tw- uh, from, from 22 games from set-piece situations. So between more and set-pieces, they were scoring over a goal a game and then add to that a few from Harry Wilson, from Ojo, from Murphy, uh, goals from Bakuna and Volks and Rules from midfield as well. They they just got a lot of goals from different areas. They were one of four very direct teams in that season. That was Barnsley under Ishmael, that was Wickham under Ainsworth, Rotherham under Warren and, and Cardiff under McCarthy. They didn't press that much out of possession. They mostly just got into shape. But they attacked with proper intensity, with speed and with quality. It wasn't boring to watch at that point, albeit it became incredibly difficult to watch the next season. So just transposing that onto the current Blackpool squad, I could see something like Maxwell in goal or Grimshaw if the fans get their way. I'm obviously hoping that cousin Chris keeps the gloves and the uh, and the armband. Uh, Ek Piteta, Thornalee... I think we can expect Aidan Flint to join, don't you? Because I don't think he's particularly wanted at Stoke City. Um, (laughs) And Sean Morrison, I would have expected him to join as well had he not joined Rotherham 10 days ago. Uh, I think Connolly and Hus... Curtis Nelson. Yeah, not a bad shout, actually. That's a great shout. I think Connolly and Husband will be fine for what McCarthy will want from his, his sort of defensive wing backs. I think Dougal and Tribal will be fine for what he wants in that kind of midfield two ball winners. And then in front of, of that, he's been pretty flexible before. I could see Bowler having a sort of free roll, Medine up top as the target man and, and probably Yates playing off him. Something like that. Um, my main concern is is goals. Whether they'll be able to replicate that sort of varied Um, avenue of attack that that he had for a few months under Cardiff because Medin is not key for more. I don't think the midfield goals are necessarily there and Ek and Thornley aren't exactly Morrison and Flint trotting up for 15 set pieces a game so I agree with you I'd be very surprised if Blackpool go down now this season under Mick McCarthy so for a five month appointment I think it's great Um, as you said then what if they do will they hold their nerve to not appoint him full time because that will not be part of their plan right now but that will be tough to do, because if he keeps him up, everyone's going to think he's an absolute legend. So, interesting. Interesting one to watch. Let's ways through a couple more championship games. George, Birmingham 1, Preston 2. Uh, Preston just much happier on their travels than at home. Uh, and, uh, yeah, ahead tunnel up pretty early here against this Birmingham side who have really lost their grip on things.
1: Yeah, things are starting to take a nasty turn again for Birmingham. Um, it's important to remember that with, with Birmingham City, the, the fans... Are not fickle enough to pretend that everything is okay when, when things were going okay on the pitch you know, the anger towards the owners never subsided but naturally when things start to get worse then the the noise grows a lot louder again and that is what's happened you know it did feel to me at least that um in Craig Gardner and um and John Eustace things on the footballing side were progressing really nicely and suddenly in the last few weeks there's been a a massive massive regression there Uh, and this was another case of that Um, going 2-0 down after 15 minutes at home isn't good enough it was a a brilliant run Edson left it to strike Uh, although uh, you have to maybe think that John Ruddy should have done better with it um, for the first and then and then Alan Brown from a from a corner to make it 2-0 and Birmingham had their chances you know they as you'd expect at home from 2-0 down early on had the better of the game after that Uh, Lukas Jukovic got one back with about 10 minutes to go but realistically was never really going to be enough even though Preston threatened very little um so it's yeah hard to put your well it's hard for me to put my finger on exactly what has happened there it does feel like there's been a a bit of a a confidence dip in terms of, of what Birmingham are trying to do they do have quite a few players in terms of Tahit Chong and Hannibal players who haven't necessarily played a lot of football but Five defeats on the bounce is a far cry from where they were in October and November and um, they're conceding so many goals. Teams are finding it incredibly easy to score against them and, and they have no real reply. So maybe this is the test. You know, We were talking about Eustace in glowing terms recently. How does he deal with this? How does he reroute a side devoid of, of quality and devoid of confidence?
0: Yeah, basic things like controlling the football and simple passing is, is looking very difficult right now for, for some of the Birmingham players in particular. At least we got a Djukovic back post header to enjoy because each one of these needs to be savoured. There probably won't be many left, but it's uh, one of the EFL's greatest and most comforting sights of the last, what, 10, 15 years. Um, Stoke beat Reading 4-0. George Reading taking their usual day off uh, away from home. But Just a bizarre team, really, aren't they? They, they might be, like, Reading away from home if you if you consider the championship here we go if you consider the championship to be 48 teams right and every every team's right. home version and away version I think reading away could be up there with the worst of the teams in the league um, I think they're the only teams who have lost double figure away games so far this season thankfully at home they've got the fifth best record so it genuinely doesn't much matter as long as they're good enough at, at home but geez they really they do look poor
1: on the travels Reading's away form this season: fifteen games, three wins, two defeats, ten sorry, two draws, ten defeats, eleven goals scored, twenty-eight conceded, minus seventeen. Uh, only Huddersfield have picked up fewer points than them away from home, but Huddersfield have only played twelve away games and have got nine points for that. So, in terms of PPG, Reading definitely the worst team in the Championship away from home. What I find strange: a couple of things are strange about this about this one. Firstly, and obviously, game state plays a park, but. Reading here had like loads of the ball, loads of possession. They attempted nearly 600 passes in the game, which you would not expect when Lintz comes up against an Alex Neil side. But did absolutely nothing with it at all, and that is not something you expect to see from from Reading in my mind. Is just knocking it around the back, probing without any real urgency or any or any cutting edge. You know, you, you would in my mind at least. They're a team who who like to go pretty direct at all times, um, and that's. Definitely not a slight. That is just their style of play under Inns and something that's been very successful, especially at home. Secondly, it's the way that they often down tools in games. Um, They have been beaten and well beaten by by Rotherham, by Sunderland, now by by, uh, Stoke here. And even though it was cruelly overlooked for the Puskas Award, Jack Clark's goal against Sunderland... Sorry, Jack Clark's goal against Reading was an example of a team who'd basically given up in a game in terms of the off the ball work and I think we saw the same here you know the, the shot um, for the Dwight Gale goal that's, it's just passive defending from Reading they just basically they just can't really be bothered anymore out on the pitch and you know when you're not safe from relegation and goal difference could play quite an important part of things unravel. To basically down tools in a game isn't particularly acceptable and it's not really something you'd expect again from a from a poor inside. You'd think, you know, for those who have, he has a few detractors tactically, I think it's fair to say, but you'd think of, of him being able to, you know, the, the self-appointed, self-anointed governor should be able to get his teams to, to, to keep running at least until till the end of the game. So those two things kind of super, was surprising from that point of view. Stoke, it's a big win for them. It's a big win for Alex Neal. It's it's the kind of win that he needs in order to to try and somehow breathe some life into this corpse of a club that manager after manager just can't really seem to, to get a handle on. Um, I would... I've been debating whether or not I should say this. I don't think it's it, the goal should be given to Dwight Gale. I think it's a Josh Lawrence goal. I feel like if it was any apart from Gale, people would be like, well... because. It, is Lawrence shot going wide I, I've seen the angle from behind the goal it looks like it might be going in and it kind of hits Gale and because everyone loves Dwight Gale scoring championship goals it's like oh nice look he's finally off the mark
0: 1400 minutes without a goal he was the he was the championships highest XG without scoring yet player and uh, and what do they say he just needs one to go in off his backside and it literally did it, that is exactly what yeah, happened it it's absolutely perfection um, yeah I've Justice for Josh against his former club, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I want to go a bit harder f- pro-Stoke here because they won 4-0 and that is objectively good. But I, I sort of think for Stoke, like every defeat is met with such despondency and such misery that I really like seeing them win because it's a respite from bad vibes. But given the quality of the opposition here and their performance, I don't really want to get carried away because I don't really see... You know, It's the sort of thing we're going to want to see another another few occasions of there's there's not been much to get excited about at stoke except the promise of another rebuild in the summer but even that i don't think the fan base is that excited about because that's kind of what they've been promised every one of the last four or five summers i think as everyone who listens to the pod knows i think alex neil is about as good a manager as you can get at this level so um if they're not looking great under alex neil so far I would double down on patience being needed, patience in him being the right thing. Um, He's been pretty strong about saying I've managed at the top level and in loads of different situations for quite a long time now and I know what is needed to get us to be a better football team. So I'm just kind of... Wow, did you just start rapping? (laughs) <laughs> and I'm just sort of waiting. I'm now just sitting here waiting for that, was... that to happen. So there you go. They, you know, they basically win every third match. And so far, that's enough to keep them out of a really scary relegation scrap. And they just need to keep doing that. Uh, Wigan nil, Luton 2, as as expected, really. Um, discussed this one on the betting show. They'd played each other in the FA Cup. Third round replay in midweek and Luton had won the game late, but absolutely deservedly had, had been clearly the better side um, and, and were again here today making the most of a Stephen Colker error. He got tackled by Cornick, um, couldn't control the ball properly and Cornick fired in. Uh, and I think the wind came out of the Wigan sails pretty quickly, which seems to be happening quite a lot at the moment. They're going behind regularly and they are not coming back into games. And at nil nil, they are not good enough. Um, Elijah Adebayo getting the second, who... In the first 24 appearances of the season, had only scored three goals uh, and now has doubled it, three in his last three. So I think Rob Edwards probably deserves a little nod there because Adebayo, a year ago, is being talked about a Premier League move and, you know, seven-figure fee, eight-figure fee. What's 10 million plus? An eight-figure fee. Eight. Six zeros and then two other numbers before. Yeah, that's him.
1: exactly how I did the working out. <laughs> well. I would, I'd love to know what percentage of those people listening also did the same. <laughs> some.
0: Well, he was that and then since the start of this season has very much looked like he was lacking in confidence and motivation. So whatever Rob Edwards' approach to turning that around uh, seems to have worked and that will be very valuable both on and off the pitch for Luton Town. Some draws. Watford won. Rotherham one Was an early Shane Ferguson goal cancelled out by João Pereira. Joao Ferreira, I should say, um, Fossu making his Rotherham debut, very involved. That's one of my favourite January additions in the league, uh, albeit he did miss quite a good chance. I think he will be a great signing for Matt Taylor and Rotherham. Uh, QPR won, Swansea one was a nice goal from Jamal Lowe against his old club and then Fulton replying for Swansea, decent point for them, probably more frustration for QPR who are really struggling to find their mojo at the moment and then Bristol City won, Blackburn one. Blackburn Rovers have drawn a league match. Bristol City have not won a penalty for loads of days. So there you go. Semenya made it three three and three amidst heavy Premier League transfer rumour. League One, George, let's go to the top. Tell me about Plymouth 4, Cheltenham 2, these magical pilgrims.
1: Yeah, apologies to Argyle fans for doubting your team and the betting show um, because this was a resounding victory over Cheltenham side who, who weren't bad um, in the game. I think a few Argyle fans left Home Park on Saturday quite happy that it was Cheltenham that, that Sheffield Wednesday com- will come up against if the game goes ahead on Tuesday night because they played their part in this one. Um, but yet again, it was Argyle putting their chances away with incredible, ruthless efficiency. Um, you know, Hardy's goal stroked into the bottom corner from from twenty five yards, probably the key one to put them two 0 up. And from there, it was always them being ahead, despite uh, Cheltenham coming back into the game twice. Really important as well. You think, especially having lost Morgan Whitaker to see new players coming into the side that came in in January and playing a really big part in the game. Um, great to see Callum Wright. Not a not even a sniff of a muted celebration from him up against the the club that he played for last season in Cheltenham, scoring the third goal. Um, and Jay Matete playing his part in the third. Finna Zaz back from injury, getting two assists. Uh, yeah, it was And, and Antoic Wright playing a left wing back. Um, nearly scored an incredible volley uh, early on in the game at 0-0. Um, but just, that's quite a few new players to bring into a side who are top of the league. And they're looking very, very uh, good value for it. You know, we're going to learn, as you say, we're recording this on Monday afternoon. I have to assume that quite a few games on Tuesday night will be called off. But this is the big midweek leveler. This is the um, this, these are the games in hand being played. If they do get played, that is the case for Wednesday, who, as I say, go to Cheltenham. that is the case for for Stevenage, who go to Swindon. And we're gonna, you know, we always have to caveat every lead table with, well, they've got a game in hand. They're two points behind. This is if those two games go ahead, we're gonna really see who's in the driving seat to to go up and win promotion.
0: Because Sheffield Wednesday beat Fleetwood one nil, making something of a habit of winning football matches without too much fuss. I think in an ideal world they would have got the second goal that they threatened to get because you know what they always say? In a in a one goal lead match, the other team always has one chance. That's what they say, isn't it, the commentary team. You know there will be one chance. We know that. There there legally and contractually, there will be one chance. And Fleetwood had it to be fair. Jed Garner went through Snuck through, was foiled by Cameron Dawson, uh, who has done very well since winning the gloves uh, a couple of months ago. The 1-0 goal was just a lovely bit of play from Liam Palmer, playing right centre-back. Uh, and is so often the case for teams who play three at the back, but the onus is on them to attack a set defence. You need something from one of your outside centre-backs. You just need them to do something in terms of carrying the ball or making good passes because they are generally going to be the ones who have most touches. They are generally going to be the ones who your attack will live or die by. Because if they can be an, a net positive, then teams can get opened up, as was the case here when Palmer did what he did and slipped in Windass to cut back for Marvin Johnson. If they're not good enough on the ball or they're off their game, that's when things can get pretty clogged up. So Chef Wednesday definitely controlling this one, uh, missing a penalty with the last kick of the game, Lee Gregory. Um, but also, you know, thankful to Cameron Dawson for his alertness. When the time came, it's five wins in a row. They're unbeaten in 15 in the league with 10 wins and five draws. And George this season, Wednesday, have only lost to Plymouth Argyle away, Peterborough away and Barnsley at home. It's it's a scarcely believable 16 clean sheets that they've kept. And it's just, it's just a wonderful winning football team right now, which can't be said for Ipswich Town, who are desperately trying to keep pace with Plymouth Argyle and Sheffield Wednesday and are struggling to do so because Oxford United 2, Ipswich
1: 1, what the fog? Fog at the cast is all mine um, yeah, a, a really strange game <laughs> where um, for those of us who weren't there sadly, it was pretty hard to follow even in the highlights um, but a, a massive win for Oxford one that I absolutely did not see coming having watched the game between these two on Boxing Day where Ipswich were like a Premier League side up against a League 2 side in that one um, but Oxford set up in a, in a, a new formation playing kind of five at the back, I guess, uh, with Kieran Brown shuffling into centre-back, new signing Brandon Fleming playing left-wing back, Javan Anderson playing right-wing back. Yannick Wilschut, who, um, uh, I mean, how do I describe Yannick Wilshire? He was a player that we knew so well um, at Wigan for his electric pace and his, and, his, and his physical ability. He's turned up at Oxford looking a little bit like a rugby player, where he seems to have lost that yard of pace, but still has the absolute manic Yannick qualities in the final third, where he can do the sublime and the ridiculous. Here, he um, was put up front, which I think could be quite a good way of playing him if he has lost that pace, and he scored an unbelievable solo goal to put Oxford 1-0 up, held off the defender, Great touch. A couple of um, Luis Suarez kind of dribbles through the opposition legs and then poking the ball home for for, for the 1-0 goal. A brilliant bit of play. And if he can continue, continue to, to provide that that lack of pace or that lack of, of match sharpness might not be too much of an issue. Uh, Leif Davis went the other up, up the other end straight away and made it 1-0. And, yeah, it was strange where there were seemingly, there were conversations throughout the second half about abandoning the game. Uh, but there is a, a rule that says... Um, if the game gets 75 minutes, then the result has has to stand. Seemingly reported in the local press, Kieran McKenna and Kyle Robinson decided the game should be called off midway through the second half. But when they told the referee, the referee said, well, it's too late. We're now at 75 minutes. You won't be able to replay the game. And so they had to carry on playing. And Cameron Brannigan pops up very, very late to score what is a brilliant goal. I've only been able to see it properly because um, of some amateur camera, um, you know, some amateur filming from behind the goal. Uh, and now... Carl Robinson said after the game that they shouldn't have been playing. Um, Kieran McKenna has come out afterwards and is demanding to know why they, why they couldn't abandon the game. I think there's a fair bit of um, you know outcome bias in this where if it had been Wes Burns lashing the ball home from 20 yards, I don't think Ipswich would be confronting um, anybody to, to ask why the game has to be replayed and, and it certainly would have been Oxford. But um, yeah, a bit of a farce all, all told. And it does feel like this... Ipswich side are cursed where they, they find a different means of losing games despite winning the XG battle in basically every single game they play in. They are incapable of turning that into, into wins. Um, I have to say, I'm starting to see a few Ipswich fans asking questions of McKenna um, for the first time. As, an, as a fan of a club who might be looking for a manager in the summer, I, I wouldn't mind him if he was given the old tin tack. Portsmouth 2x0. George, John Massino
0: was only appointed officially and unveiled on the morning of the game. So I'm going to give credit for the setup to Simon Bassey. Uh, it wasn't actually a very easy game for, for Portsmouth. I felt like Exeter were, were probably the better side for the first half, but they rallied, they took a deep breath, and inspired by their new manager, uh, they, they got the win.
1: Yeah, this feels proper, proper new manager bounce variancy, doesn't it, this one, where, um, as you say, I don't, as much as I want John Sr. to do well at um, at Pompey, um, I don't think there was too much actually in the game that was much better. You've got a new keeper and Matt Macy, and credit to them for bringing him in, making a couple of really important saves. But Exeter, as you say, definitely the better side in the first half by firing away the team who'd have gone in at half time more frustrated at not having broken the deadlock. You've then got Marlon Pack producing a moment of absolute. Wonder with such a such a good strike. I cannot express how good it is to hit a ball like that. One of those goals where if it dips into the top right hand corner rather than the bottom right hand corner, uh, it's going to get more plaudits just because of the pure aesthetics of it. But he has hit that so well, um, and that you know it's that moment of quality, quality with it with a slice of luck. Because I think whenever you score from you know when you hit a dipping volley from that far out, you you know you need a, a slice of luck for it to go the right side of the post. That, that Danny and Nicky Cowley would have paid a lot of money for a couple of weeks ago um, and then a goalkeeper Howler that Danny and Nicky Cowley would have paid a lot of money for a couple of weeks ago as well where, you know, the shot comes in from Morel I don't know how Jamal Blackman has managed to, to let it squirm under him, but he has. And, and suddenly, it's two 0 It's massive for Massinho. It buys him some time. It, it gets some credit in the bank with it with the fans. He must have been thinking, "What am? What have I signed on for here?" When he was sitting in a standing on the touchline, and he looks up during the first half and sees a, a plane flying over Fratton Park, saying "Eisner's out." Um, but as we mentioned on our YouTube video, you know, he can very much, in the same way that I guess John Eustace at least had at Birmingham, he can distance himself from the issues that the club have with the Eisners, with the owners here. Um, he can very much you know, be aligned with the fans and, and trying to, to get things to work on the pitch the way that they want to see rather than being seen as Eisner's man. And I think that you know, being Rich Rich User's man probably helps him in that respect as well. Um, so yeah, a, a really important three points for him, even if I'm not going to pretend that we saw any managerial genius come out on Saturday.
0: Well, I don't think... A large proportion of the people listening will have watched our YouTube video talking about the John Mousinho appointment. So, without necessarily going over old ground, I still think it's worth uh, having some thoughts on the matter on the Monday pod. Uh, you, for example, George just said, "Obviously, I really want Mousinho to do well as Portsmouth manager." Well, tell me why.
1: Because uh, he was an Oxford's, you know, captain first-team coach, stalwart player. Um, But not only is it blind loyalty, he's also somebody who um, is is university-like within the game. Uh, He's someone who speaks about the game very well. He's very intelligent. That's why he was PFA chair, uh, a role that he is now resigning from uh, due to his new commitment as as Pompey manager. He's someone who, you know, I was by no means advocating um, his installation as manager this season, but if and when Kyle Robinson does leave the club, had Moose still been first-team coach, I think, so long as it came after the proper protocols have been taken to, to find the best candidate. If that had been judged to be John Messinio, I think everyone at Oxford would have been delighted with that. So definitely one of the good guys in football and you know Pompey, I think, are one of the good clubs as well. So I'm, I'm delighted to see them together and, and hopefully, despite all the noise um, and, and understandably the, the issues that the fan base have with the, with the, the ownership. Uh, hopefully, Moose can can do a good job there because I think football will be well. The EFL will be a great place if he proves to be a, a, a you know a promising manager.
0: I had to chuckle at a line that I saw a couple of times from disgruntled Pompey fans, which was brilliant. We've we've hired Oxford's fourth choice centre back to be our manager, <laughs> like because it, objectively that is quite funny. It's also a bit cheeky and a little bit disingenuous because George. He's actually not just been a player for Oxford over the last few years, right? Like this isn't, it's not the case where John Musinho has been a normal football player that has suddenly been whipped out of a dressing room, given a suit or a track suit and thrown into a dugout. He would have, he has had, as far as I can see, what I would describe as basically a sort of managed transition between playing and managing with a singular focus on management at some point but kind of doing it in a way where he went well you know what if I can keep contributing when needed as a player while also learning the ropes being within a club learning the ropes in a in a sort of a a fairly informal way like an a, a way without loads of pressure initially and clearly Oxford were happy for him to to do that because of what he offered as a leader in the dressing room and occasionally on the pitch. I mean, his league minutes in the last two and a half years, where he played 110 league minutes in 2021, 128 in 21-22, and he's played 188 league minutes this season. So he's played around four or five league matches worth in two and a half years. And so I think that's worth saying because it's not the case that he's just been whipped off the pitch straight into the dugout. He's been working towards this for some time and I think he's just had quite a lucky and probably quite an unusual situation where he's been able to do that while being you know within a club uh, even if his the, the sort of name of his role was player rather than first team coach or whatever it was I, I know that as you said on the on the YouTube video he's been very involved with um, some of the set piece stuff and I have absolutely no doubt he's been involved in tactical discussions and and is is sort of you know he's certainly not being thrown in without Without any sort of um, run-up, shall we say? Um, I don't have a problem with the fans feeling underwhelmed with with the appointment. Um, I certainly don't have a problem with the fans feeling that the owners aren't quite giving them what they want, what they expect. I do find, as a admittedly emotionless, dispassionate observer, I do find some of the words and phrases that get trotted out quite, quite galling, just quite annoying. So, like the cheap, the cheap option has been used a lot here. Like, oh, well, classic Eisners, they've just gone for the cheap option. I mean, in general, I find the idea of, of, of expecting more money to be spent by an owner quite sort of problematic in general. We know that in the EFL, teams just lose tons of money. They're not good businesses and they don't make their owners money. In fact, they cost them money. So by spend more money, you basically mean lose more money burn more money uh, and that just generally is something that i struggle with albeit i understand that the Eisners have a pretty sensational net worth uh, and the fans maybe feel like they could maybe maybe use some more of that for the uh, for the betterment of the football club but the the cheap option thing does wind me up a little bit because i don't believe that the owners have hired rich hughes and asked him to do their thing with the manager and player recruitment and then gone but by the way don't hire any managers that are expensive because we can't do that. Like, I trust that the process has been done properly and the reasons for ending up with John Massino are sound rather than because he's got a lower wage than Chris Wilder, who keeps being mentioned as if he would have ever gone to Pompey.
1: But it, it is, you are right, it is one of the weirder kind of football fallacies is this idea of the cheap option being a bad thing. You know, I think the best managerial appointment you could possibly make is a really successful cheap option. Like you know, that's isn't you know everyone wants a bargain. It's the same with player recruitment. Um, I would start feeling quite uncomfortable if suddenly a League One club started. Well, I mean we've, we've seen it a bit with Ipswich, I guess, started spending. I'm not going to say beyond their means. I'm not sure what their means are, but you don't want to see clubs just spending money for the sake of it. You know the the way to the way to win in recruitment in football. Is to uncover value, and that is the case with managers as well. So going out and spending money, paying compensation for a manager who's you know might not be the best person available, and therefore showing ambition, it's it's a nonsense really. And that's not to say that you know, I guess the cheap option. You don't want your club appointed making a cheap decision because they're cheap, and that I think is is often what fans are getting the hump with. But at least you know see what what they've got to offer. I think to call John Massino the cheap option in that respect is, is incredibly disrespectful to somebody who's got all their coaching badges, has however many hundred EFL caps under their belt and is PFA chair. I mean, that, yeah, it's, it's not a bad resume, even if it doesn't have any managerial uh, games under his belt. Derby
0: beat Bolton 2-1 and George, more of the same for Derby, who each week seemed to seem to be able to roll off Four or five clear, strong performers here, Bird, Barkhazen, Mendes Lang, and lovely
1: Connor. Great goal from Connor, wasn't it? Mm. It's not he often to you see him do that, really. I, I didn't think he had license to go into the box. Um, yeah, brilliant display from them again. Um, I think having initially. I was never downbeat about the appointment of Paul Warren. It's impossible to be. I was just frustrated that I thought Rasenia was doing something quite good. But it does now feel like maybe with Rasenia managing in the championship and doing a good job, maybe this is one of those very rare, lovely occasions where Derby's decision to replace Rasenia with Paul Warren is just the best case for all parties. You know, it's the equivalent of, two, of a couple breaking up when they're quite happy, but then a couple of days later, both meeting the loves of their lives and going on to lead happy lives apart forever that is the case with these two I think because yeah Derby under Warn is working so well um, it's yeah the age of the squad maybe concerned me with Warren coming in um, because of what he demands from his players in terms of fitness and they're off the bulwark it's absolutely fine um, they are able to create so many chances. They are playing at that high-energy, high-octane stuff that we're used to. It, it is. It's a little bit like watching Paul Warns Rotherham, just with a little bit more finesse and a little bit more quality. And that, given how successful Warns Rotherham were in League One, um, that is as a warning. And, and I was thinking about this this morning, where a couple of weeks ago, whoever finished third in, especially given how far away they are, whoever finished third in League One, I think probably would have would have really fancied their chances to to go up in the playoffs and be heavy favourites to do so. The way that Derby are playing, I would not want to face them in the playoffs. I I think Derby are operating pretty near the level of the other three. It's just they were given a bit of a head start and therefore they're unlikely to catch them up. Mm. But um, yeah, really impressive.
0: Well, Bolton are fifth in the playoff places. Uh, They're absolutely there on merit. They're a very, very strong team. But as far as I can see, they have one potentially significant problem if promotion is their ambition, and that is their record against other contenders. Uh, This season... In games against the top six, they've lost away at Argyle and away at Derby. Now they drew with Ipswich away, which is a good result. Um, they beat Barnsley away, albeit it was a red card and a penalty after 10 minutes, which helped them. And at home, three nil nil draws against Argyle, Derby, and Barnsley, and a two nil defeat at home to Sheffield Wednesday. And it's a continuation from last season, where against the top six or seven teams, they lost. Well, against the top seven, they lost ten of 14. They drew three. And the one win against the top seven of 14 was a 6-0 win against Sunderland. Uh, One of the betting show's most famous naps that. Um, So clearly in the last two seasons, this has been a very strong League One team who have last season flirted with the playoffs. This season very much uh, reside within them, but who, for whatever reason, and particularly away from home, really, really struggle to have any sort of impact on the teams that they're fighting for promotion with. So something for Ian Evatt to, to think about for sure. Barnsley, another team in the playoffs, had a very, very easy home win against Accrington. 3-1. Now they were 3-0 up after 20 minutes here. And Accrington, I'm afraid, just let them tickle their tummies, which I think is not a great sign. Um, as good as Barnsley are and as, as uh, at it as they were to start this game, for me, the, the most notable thing here is that Accrington just seem to have lost a lot of that zeal, a lot of that competitiveness that that they needed to be such a, a brilliant League One team relative to their budget over the last few seasons. Um, from a Barnsley point of view, Luca Connell was imperious. Adam Phillips was absolutely excellent. Um, and it was a great day. And I see that today they've triggered their club options for Mads Anderson, for Jordan Williams and for Bradley Collins. So more positives for, for Barnsley to start the week. It was never in doubt that they would trigger those club options rather than let them go for free in the summer because I consider Anderson as a centre-back and Williams at right-back to be among the best players in their position in the division. uh, And Collins very solid in goal as well. So they're making sure that they will get properly paid for them in the summer, if they lose them in the summer, of course, um, or, you know, in January, but I I don't think they will. Uh, George Shrew's five, Cambridge one. Over a decade since Shrewsbury scored nine goals in back-to-back league games. <laughs> uh, that's what they've done here. Cambridge, miles off it once again. Shrews more than happy to make them pay.
1: Yeah, really fearful for for Mark Bonner um, and his Cambridge side at the moment. Uh, I, I don't see any reason why things are going to improve as it stands. Um, they're currently three points off bottom and... Um, as we mentioned in our kind of mid-season review pods, it feels like the situation with Bonner might make it difficult because they are, I think, if it, if if Mark Bonner was called, I don't know, Steve Cottrell, he probably would have been sat by now. Um, but because of his affinity to the club and, and what he's done there, understandably he's getting a, a longer leash. And I do hope he can turn it around. I was kind of thought that maybe by the time we are recording today, there may have been some news, but seemingly he's going to get another opportunity to turn it around. But we shouldn't really focus on on Cambridge here. Because as you say, this was all about um, Shrewsbury, who've had an incredible week off the back of what was a pretty disappointing run of form. A run of form that saw their fans go from thinking that um, a playoff tilt was possible to suddenly looking over their shoulders and checking the rearview mirror to see how close the relegation teams uh, were to them. But nine goals scored against Burton and Cambridge pushes them firmly clear of that. Um, Luke Leahy the star here um, his trademark penalty goal but also grabbing the, the fifth as well a couple of assists in there too um, I guess the, the positive for me here is that Shrew, Shrewsbury's best performances in my mind this season have been when Tom Bayliss and Jordan Shipley have run the show and that wasn't the case here at all Bayless barely played a part in the game um, he was probably um, he yeah he came on with, with 20 minutes to go, um, so you can't really credit him with being the quality in the side. Jordan Shipley scored a goal, um, but was by no means one of the protagonists in the game, uh, in my mind. Um, Sadie's looking really lively up front. They've lacked a striker like him. Um, yes, he hasn't done it consistently so far, but you think this might be a, a platform to him, for him to go from. So, yeah, I, I've been fairly negative around Shrewsbury this season. I, I still think they are a side who are better than the worst teams in this league, so are able to to beat them fairly comfortably and still pretty consistently come up short when playing against the best teams. And that's why they'll finish somewhere, I think, between the relegation zone and mid-table. But but a brilliant week for them that that puts to rest any uh, League One existential fears.
0: Yeah, I've got got huge respect for what Steve Cottrell and and Shrews have done over the last 18 months. Um, But also, whoever gets credit for their recruitment, I think, needs to get some credit on this podcast because, I mean, firstly, when I say I have huge respect for what they've done, calling avoiding a League One relegation battle a huge success probably doesn't get people's pulses racing, but it sets mine racing because I think it's very impressive um, in, a, in a difficult league with what I don't imagine is one of the league's strongest budgets, that's for sure. You have to sign well, and they have done for two years now. This summer they signed Dunkley, Bayliss and Shipley on permanence. All huge successes so far, Aidan O'Brien joined, that didn't work out, and fine, you're not going to get them all right. They loaned really well. They got five loanees in the starting lineup. of course, long-term, that's not ideal, it's not brilliant, but they're all contributing in in either a big or a small way. Uh, I think it's just DaCosta, really, this season that hasn't. Uh, Last season... It was pretty similar in terms of signing permanent players that have given them now 18 months of strong performances. People like Lee, he and, and Bennett to a certain extent and a few others. Very few failures and very few wasted signings for Shrews, which is what you're always after. The loans weren't great last season, better this year and they're a better team this year. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with Shrewsbury, even if they're not. Unbelievably exciting to watch week to week. I still think that what they're doing is, is highly impressive on the resources and in their situation in this league. Uh, MK beat Forest Green 2-1. George, big, big win in a poor game. Uh, only four shots on target total here and, and they pretty much tell the story of the game, I think. Um, a nice take from Pert Harris to put Forest Green ahead. Then two very smart finishes from Moisa. and how much of an impact will he make if he could play, you know, if he could start the next 10 games and stay fit. With his finishing ability and his movement inside the box, you'd think would have a big impact. And then one more near the end from range from Forest Green. Well saved by Cumming to to secure the points for MK. So not a classic game, but you know, a significant result, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, I'd love to sit here and say that things under Mark Jackson at, at MK look way better and this was a huge win and a much improved performance. But I can't really see that. As you say, this is a game between two really poor sides um, and neither created a great deal, um, neither looked particularly good. And, you know, one team in MK took two of their very few chances and another in Forest Green only took one. Um, of course, results results can breed confidence. This might be a turning point for them. There's no denying that this is an absolutely massive game and MK are putting in a lot of better performances this season and come out with nothing. So um, in terms of the, their their you know, survival chances, this was a huge, huge one for for, for Jackson. Um, but as I say, I, I, having seen some signs at the end of Liam Manning's reign that things were getting better at MK, as far as I can see here, they were just, they weren't much better. They, they scored more goals than the worst team in the league on the day.
0: That'll do it. Uh, league 2, the top two. Stevenage 3, Lake and Orient 0. George, they absolutely blitzed them in front of 6,989 fans, including 1,382 from Leighton Orient, the highest ever attendance at Stevenage for an EFL game, their third highest overall. The fairy tale
1: continues. Yeah, I mean, it was no surprise. Uh, Again, on Five Live, we're talking through all the games that were called off in League Two. And Chappas said, but one of the game that is on is Stevenage. And I was like, yes, and I can assure you that Steve Evans would have done everything he could to get this game on because Orient obviously lacking um, so much depth uh, across the back line in terms of, of injuries and suspensions. Um, there was no way Steve Evans was going to let this opportunity to play late in Orient with with half their back line missing uh, pass. And you know, the intensity that they started with, I think, was uh, at odds with the, the game you saw between these two sides at Orient. Alley where Stevens very much went there with the express aim of just pacifying the game and making it as un- as unintense as possible and riding out to a nil-nil draw. Whereas here they came and they brought it to Orient immediately and they were 2-0 up so quickly, two long balls forward, winning the first header, getting Orient facing their own goal and quality finishes um, to put it away. The red card was, was ridiculous um, for, for Orient. The second one, you know, getting the ball and yeah, and bringing it back. Um, yeah, not not clever. Uh, and then and then Stevenage it was ended up being three. They missed a couple of chances as well in the second half. Um, and there was some interesting words exchanged between the two managers before this game because um, Wellens had said after the that the reverse that that his side were, were, the, were the real winners of the game. Um, Steve Evans said before this one that they were so fortunate and so so grateful for that point they got um, at Orient. And then Wellens after this one, he was very, he was so keen to try and take the blame, but he just couldn't do it. <laughs> Richie Wellens just couldn't do it. A couple of, a couple of things for you. He says, "I'll more or less take all the criticism. I think I got the team wrong. The way we set up was wrong. Well done. Stop there, Richie. No. But the players have to look in the mirror as well, because if you don't compete here. They've got a lot of results through, through competing. Okay, so he's kind of said, "I'm going to take the blame here," and then he's 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 thrown his his team under the bus, uh, <laughs> and then and then um, secondly, I'm not going to blame the referee. Cool, don't do it then. But he was poor today. Okay, well, Richie, you, you've blamed the players there, and you blamed the referee, but you're taking all the blame, aren't you? Um, I can understand disappointment again. Maybe we shouldn't read too much into interviews or managers to thrust a a microphone straight after the game. But um, this one will hurt him and Stevenage with the opportunity if the game is on against Swindon to go top of the league um, with level games played.
0: So they're they're currently, as of the weekend and after this game, favourites with the bookmakers Um, because they've played a game less. they got two points less. But it's actually 2.11 PPG, plays 2.12 PPG. So it's a great time to compare them, George. Stevenage favourites. Uh, do you agree with that? Can you see why that would be, despite the fact they're on the same, essentially the same PPG right now?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I think at this, at this stage, Stevenage have the, are in the ascendancy. They're showing no signs of dropping off, and, and with Orient, they are. I mean, maybe Stevenage's drop-off is still to come. Um, but yeah, at this stage, I think Stevenage are more likely...
0: Okay, let's go down to the bottom of League 2, where two games were on and they were big games. Two games between teams in the bottom, what, five or six? Um, And Colchester nil, Gillingham 2 is Gillingham's deep breath. First away win of the season. They hadn't scored twice in a league game this season until last weekend. They've now done that back-to-back. In fact, George, this is back-to-back league wins for Gillingham for the first time since March 2021. 21 months since they last won consecutive league games the the weirdest cold finishing streak of all time is over for the first half of the season yes they were pretty bad at creating chances but on top of that they were also having one of the coldest finishing streaks of all time confidence now at Gillingham is well maybe not quite flowing but it's uh it's in motion it's it's kinetic having previously been AWOL uh, whereas Cole you... Used- <laughs> That is incredible.
1: I never knew I never knew the opposite of kinetic was AWOL. You learn something new every day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the antonym, yeah. George Colu's own sort of renewed confidence takes a bit of a hit here. They, they didn't seem to have many answers once they were behind. Um, definitely a very poor result, but I guess they kind of bought themselves a bit of breathing room over the last few weeks, so not disastrous, maybe.
1: Yeah, a much bigger result. Um, for Gillingham than it would have been for Colchester had they won. Um, it was, a, as you say, a, a bit of a weird game, this one, where, yes, the, the result and, and the win um, went to uh, Gillingham away from home. Um, I don't think there was a great deal between the two. Uh, Colchester had um, 15 shots, Gillingham 6. They won the XG battle, kind of 1 to 0.5. Um, there wasn't much between the two, but quality from players brought in by 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 well, by the new owner Neil Harris and Andy Hessenthaler and Kenny Jackett and anyone else who, who who fancies having a go, um, you know it does feel like Gillingham in a way way better better place right now than they have been for a long time, um, and with every three points because of the nature of League Two, um, they're they're quickly distancing themselves as as Colchester did a couple of weeks ago from the, that two team drop zone.
0: I want to defend my mate Ethan Ebanks Landell just a tiny bit. We're going to talk Hartlepool to Rochdale nil now. It's true that Ebanks-Landell's red card was the defining moment of this game. It was nil-nil at the time. It was hard fought. There wasn't much in it. Bouncing ball between Ethan Ebanks-Landell and Hamilton. And it's a red card. Let's be clear. I've seen a picture posted on Hartlepool's Twitter where Ebanks-Landell's foot is on Jack Hamilton's face. It's not. it's, It's ugly and it's a red card. But... I think in the in the absolute heat of the moment, in the speed of the match, it's understandable to see how that's happened. Like he's basically kicking upwards onto a bouncing ball to try and clear the ball, essentially, and Jack Hamilton is putting his head downwards to head the bouncing ball. And yeah, I just I, I suppose I just feel a bit more sympathetic than it, it seems like many Rochdale fans feel because I've just. Completely understandably, Dale fans are so fed up with this group of players who let themselves down and let the fans down under Robbie Stockdale and doing exactly the same under Jim Bentley. Nothing's really changed since changing manager. Um, but I put it this way, even in a game of six aside, I could you know, I could see me trying to kick upwards on a bouncing ball and someone putting their head down. I, I could imagine me kicking someone in the face without necessarily meaning to. Um, the goals here, two of them uh, for Hartlepool's front two, they were... Yeah, basically goals fit for a game between league 2 strugglers. Uh, ricochet's and rebounds galore. Umara's goal was because uh the keeper parried a shot or a shot was blocked. It went straight to a Rochdale defender, but it was kind of spinning, having taken a deflection. And the player's first touch, because of the the, the amount of spin on the ball, just took it straight out of his control and into Humera's path to finish. Uh, and then Hamilton uh, with a rebound after the keeper pushed one straight back out to him. I watched the front two play against Crawley last month, and I, f- I sort of felt like they didn't have a particularly strong partnership as a duo, and yet I. I still think both of those players individually have some decent traits. So it's one of those where I, I feel like they could both still score goals for Hartlepool in the next few months, even without necessarily being a great fit as a duo. Whereas Rochdale just need to find something from somewhere, don't they? Um, they aren't going to have the money to sign players like Colchester and Gillingham do. They've already sacked one manager earlier this season and rolled the dice, and and that looks to have come up short. Um, and they play four of the top six in their next four league games. So even though I don't think we expect much in terms of results, George will probably be able to tell from the performances and the effort against the, the, the four next fixtures whether this is a team up for the fight or not. Because if not, they're going down to, the, to non-league.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to see. Um, they can show any level of fight, but I think the quality is lacking to an extent. That it may not really matter, um, as you say, the fixtures and the way they've fallen mean that they are arguably in a false position in their lowly position now because of the difficulty their games coming up. Um, in you know, as you say, Carlisle, Salford, Northampton, Orient, Stockport after the Gillingham game, um, yeah, it, it's it's hard to see them getting many points from that. And if they do, that then all credit to, to Jim Bentley and his side because because right now things are incredibly grim.
0: And that was the weekend that was in the EFL. Such a treat to chat through it with my great friend and colleague, George Ellick. We're doing loads of fun stuff over on YouTube. So if you like video-flavored content about the EFL, then we're providing that over there. And we'd love it if you subscribed. We'd love it if you liked all of our videos and commented on them because we, we have a feeling that helps with algorithms and whatnot. And we'd like to make this a big part of our offering uh, heading into 2023 and beyond and we're really enjoying doing it so please do uh, head to our YouTube channel there's a couple of things on there from last week but this is a big week we are going to be recording on Wednesday three YouTube videos Our teams of the season so far in the EFL there's going to be some hot debate I think between us and no doubt in the comments section as well. So please subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's that's really the one thing we're asking uh, of you at this moment in time. Otherwise, hope you've enjoyed this episode. Let us know what you think at NTT20Pod on Twitter or on Instagram. Uh, You can join the NTT20 squad and be a part of the greatest community of EFL fans and lovers that exists both online and physically some of us getting to a couple of games tomorrow and having a little meet-up. So there we go. Uh, Thanks for listening. Thank you to Betfair for their support of this podcast. Go well, everyone.